Have regulations really made chemical processing plants safer? This is Process Safety with Trish and Tracy. Process Safety with Trish and Tracy is a production of Chemical Processing. Chemical Processing focuses on serving engineers, designing, and operating plants in the chemical industry. Welcome to this edition of Process Safety with Trish and Tracy, the podcast that aims to share insights from current incidents to help avoid future events. I'm Tracy Purdom, Senior Digital Editor with Chemical Processing, and I'm joined by Trish Kieran, the Director of the Institution of Chemical Engineers Safety Center. iChemi is based in the UK and Australia, but its reach is global. Well, how are you doing today, Trish? I know you've been traveling a lot lately. Where have you been? I'm doing well, thanks, Tracy. Uh, last week I was in Malaysia and Singapore, so it's always interesting to go into Asia and see how things are developing over there. Uh, this week I've spent a little bit of time in Sydney. Next week I'm off to Perth, and then uh, in a couple of weeks I'll be back over in the the US, joining you over there. Yowza! How do you keep your sleep schedule straight? Well, that's a challenge. I think I've just learnt to uh, to cope with jet lag and work around it a little bit, actually. Well, I do appreciate you taking the time for us today uh, to get together for our our podcast on process safety. Um, today's topic is regulations. And a while back, Chemical Processing hosted a webinar with the late Dr. Sam Manan. He was the former dire- then director of the Mary Kay O'Connor Process Safety Center. Uh, he was not only a champion of process safety, he was outspoken, and he certainly didn't pull any punches. Uh, he stirred the pot a little bit by stating that the jury is still out on whether regulations have made manufacturing plants safer. Obviously, regulations are needed, but I wanted to know what your thoughts on if they make plants safer or not. Sure. I think one of the, the key benefits of regulations is that they do actually set up the rule book for everybody to follow. So they create a lot of uh, consistency and certainty for industry, which I think is a very important part. If we all know what the rules are, then we can work towards playing to those rules. And that's a challenge in some places of the world where they don't have that, that consistency. Uh, for example, when I travel into the Middle East a little while ago on a previous trip when I was talking about regulations, it was interesting there. Industry actually were wanting some form of of regulation because they did want that certainty and consistency. So I think that's a great benefit to regulations. Do they make plants safer? I think a lot of that comes down to how they're regulated. And the, the, the fact is we fundamentally have two different types of regulation models in the world. We've got the type that's prevalent throughout the US and some other countries as it's developing, the the process safety management model. And this is what we call a prescriptive-based model because it actually defines quite clearly in law what rules need to be followed. And you follow those rules. The other form of legislation that exists around the world is the idea of what we call performance-based regulation. And this is the one that's prevalent throughout Europe, the UK, uh, Australia, New Zealand, and starting to move into Asia a little bit as well. And this model focuses on you need to understand your hazards and identify them. You need to identify every major accident that can occur. And then you need to implement controls to prevent and mitigate those hazards. So it's actually about defining your own uh, needs as an organisation. And that then gets checked by the regulator. And the regulator is vital in both parts of, of these equations. At the end of the day, 
I don't think it's so much about the model of regulation. I think that depends culturally on the, the countries. But I think it's more around the regulator and how they implement the regulations. Now, with the two, with the different types of, of uh, what you were just talking about, do you have a favorite? Is there such thing as a favorite? And I'm being silly, but but do you think one works better than the other? My main experience, I, I admit, is in the performance-based regime. Though I started my career within prescription. So Australia used to have a prescriptive regime where I first started my career. We then moved to a performance-based regime following the Longford incident that occurred in 1998 in Victoria. Uh, that was an explosion at a gas plant, killed two workers. That triggered the implementation of the performance-based regime in Australia, which had obviously been going in the, US, the UK sorry, and Europe for many, many years before that. Um, so my main experience is actually with the performance-based regime. I like the way it challenges you and I like the way it encourages continuous improvement. Because whilst it sounds difficult to say you must identify every hazard that could lead to a major risk, then that sounds, well, it's impossible. How can you do everything? The next part of that particular phrase is so far as is reasonably practicable. And so reasonably practicable takes in a whole lot of different aspects. And so there is actually a defence that does come in there, provided you have understood the requirements of your organisation and made your best efforts. And if you haven't implemented a control measure, then you need to be able to justify and explain why you haven't, not just that it wasn't part of the regulatory requirements, so we didn't do it. There has to be a little bit more to it than that. And so I think for me, my experience is with performance-based. It probably is my favourite. Um, there are aspects of performance-based that are actually prescriptive though. There are certain mandatory things you have to do. Uh, that, that are just required. They're just not necessarily documented in the way PSN is documented in the you must have a safe work system, you must have a management of change system. That's sort of wrapped up in you must have a management, a safety management system uh, and that must be implemented and you must demonstrate that it functions. So it's a little bit, little bit different like that. The benefit I think I see in performance-based is you're able to adapt to the changing needs and developing technologies very, very quickly because as the, the facility, you have to identify your hazards and your controls. And so when something new comes along, a new technology, you can actually incorporate that into your business very, very clearly without it needing to be written into legislation in some way. So as you'd be aware, uh, the OSHA 1910 model has not been redone in any way since the 1990s, I believe. Um, so we've got quite a, an aged piece of law um, that's prescriptive there versus the other part of the other type of law that really drives you to constantly improve and constantly drive towards a better risk outcome for the organization. Before I launch into our next question, I want to give a hat tip to our sponsor, the Iowa Economic Development Authority, which is sponsoring the 2020 Chemical Processing Process Safety webinar series. Technical knowledge and understanding of hazards and risks associated with operations are the keys to keeping workers and the environment safe. To learn more, visit chemicalprocessing.com slash webinars. Now, I want to jump back a little bit. I, I did hear you say that that it's about the regulator more than the model. Can you explain that a little more? Certainly. So I think, 
at the end of the day, both models can work and actually do work. I think the challenge we have is the regulators that are enforcing them. And I'm not suggesting that the regulators are not enforcing what the legislators intended when they wrote the piece of law. They are. They will be meeting and applying the legislation as it's written. But there's two main parts to the regulator and then a third part that is still important but probably not as important, I don't think. The first part is the regulator has to be resourced. Do they have enough people to inspect the sites, to challenge the industries and to do the job? So simply, are we resourcing our regulators enough? If we're not resourcing them enough, we have no hope of making sure that that law is implemented in a way that will generate safety outcomes. And secondly, if they've got the resources, that's great, but are they actually competent? And the competency of the regulator is very, very important because often what we find, and I've, I've observed it in industry and I've probably been guilty of it in industry myself, is the moment we find a really good regulator, we try and poach them because they're a really good person that understands risk very well. And so industry is constantly sort of poaching out of the regulator when we get the good ones and then we complain there are no good ones. Perhaps we need to stop stealing the good ones um, and let them be regulated because fundamentally the competence of the regulator is absolutely critical. If they don't know what they're doing, if they don't know what's going on, if they don't understand the risk that you're facing, then they cannot manage their role effectively because the role of the regulator is actually to challenge you. They're not there to give you a big happy tick. They're actually there to challenge and push you to make sure you are doing everything that you need to do to deliver the safe workplace. Um, the third area that I said is, I, I think is, is important, but probably not as important as the first two, is fundamentally the regulator, it's really good if they're actually helpful as well. Now, this is not to give you all the answers to everything, but the regulators are in an incredibly unique position in the world. They get to see all sorts of different facilities at all sorts of different standards. So if the regulator comes in and sees that you could be doing something better because they've seen it better somewhere else, it's really helpful if they can give you that hint to say, hey, have you thought about doing it this way? I've seen this work really well. Now, some regulators are quite nervous about going down that path because they say, well, we're telling industry what to do and we shouldn't be doing it in that way. But actually, it's quite a useful aspect of the regulator to be able to share the good practices they see so that others can start taking on those good practices. And I think we need to get over our nervousness a little bit about, you know, should regulators be giving advice? I think they need to be able to give advice in a way that is protected in law for the regulator and for the company uh, so that we can actually get the better safety outcomes, which ultimately is what safety regulation is about. We don't have the regulation, so we have a regulator to keep in a job. We have the regulation so that people go home safe at the end of the day. And they truly are a valuable resource with everything, just as you said, everything they've seen, they can they can certainly um, disseminate their, their knowledge uh, in a way that really helps everyone. And I think that's what we're talking about here today. Um, the, bringing up the question, though, how do you measure safety? Is there an official, and I've got the air quotes going on, is there an official spreadsheet somewhere that keeps track of this? No, there's, there's not one. There's multiples. 
Uh, and because there's multiples and because their incident registers are captured in different formats in different ways and by different people around the world, there is no one consistent answer. And so that is a little bit frustrating that I actually don't think we can truly say we've got this regulation and things have got better on a, on a global scale. So there's a number of different, um, different resources. So the CCPS have their process safety uh, incident database, I think it's called, the PSID. Um, so there's a whole lot of valuable information in there. We've got the likes of the CSB that list a whole lot of things that they do investigations on, but typically their list is what they do investigations on, so that's not everything as well. Across in Europe, you've got a, 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 a list called EMARS, uh, which is maintained by the European Union, I believe, and that's actually part of um, the OECD requirements. So if you're an OECD country, your regulators need to be reporting certain types of incidents into EMARS. So there is some effort at a global level to try and track these things, but we're not doing any statistical analysis on reporting against it. Uh, you know, we're not tracking, for example, what leg legislative framework that incident occurred within. Um, and it depends on the quality of the material input as to what quality of material we can get out of it. So there's a number of different databases. Um, I'm not sure another database is what the world needs. I think we need to continue action on safety rather than spend time in a place that may not be giving us um, the safety outcomes. It might just be providing us interesting information. I think anecdotally, we probably have a lot of experience around the place where we do start to perhaps see improvements, but statistically, I can't prove them. Um, I mean, certainly within Australia, anecdotally, our safety performance has got better under a performance-based regime than it was before. I can remember a number of incidents that occurred uh, in the years before we went to performance-based, very few in the years after. Now, that is just purely anecdotal and I would suggest not statistically significant enough because the numbers aren't big enough either. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I don't know how we actually go about tracking this. I, I think there's... There's still a big gap there. Um, I guess my challenge is, do we need to track it? Because is that contributing to improving safety? Or should we put that effort and resource into actually managing safety? That would be my challenge to people. And it's a good challenge, bringing it right back to, to making sure that the regulators are protected and able to, to give the good information to folks when they're in their plants, um, helping along with all of this. Um, here's a question for you, and, and I don't know if you can answer it or not, but is there a difference in safety when it's mandatory regulation versus a best practice initiative at the site? So mandatory or let's just do it because it's the right thing to do? I think it depends on the maturity and the attitude of the company, to be honest. Because ultimately, if you're operating your business and doing something because you have to and it's mandatory, then there's probably a whole lot of business-related productivity things that you're not doing. And you're probably losing money in that space. Um, and I think it comes down to the organisational cultural model or the Hudson curve, as it's sometimes called, where you know, you're right down the bottom of that reactive curve. You're not doing safety because you think it's the right thing to do or because you see value in it. You're doing it because someone's holding a big stick over your head and you have to do it. 
when you have the opportunity to be able to implement things that are improvement activities, particularly in process safety, one of the things we sometimes lose sight of um, in those less mature organisations is process safety actually delivers an organisational discipline that results in increased reliability and productivity. Therefore, you can be more profitable if you invest in process safety. And I think the, the reactive type companies that are at the very bottom of that, that culture curve don't actually realise that they could be running a better business by investing in safety because safety is that annoying regulators making me do this and I don't think I should because it's just costing me money. You're not seeing the value you can get on the other side. And I'm not just talking about the value of an accident is very expensive and you don't want to have to pay for one and they will potentially destroy your organisation depending on the size of your company as well. But you can actually make money by increased reliability in an organisation if you have decent maintenance regimes so you're not breaking down. Now, maintaining your equipment in a responsible way is actually a fundamental requirement in process safety so it doesn't break down. But it, so it doesn't break down and cause an incident in process safety, but the same breakdowns cause you to be out of production. So I think it all comes down to the organisational culture at that point in time, and I think what we need to be doing is helping people realise that there is a financial payback to good process safety, not just a preventing cost to good process safety. And that will potentially drive more organisations to understand this idea of, of how do we take the best practices and implement them so that we actually get not only the safety benefit, which is morally the right thing to do, but from a business perspective, we get the productivity benefit, which is financially a great thing to do as well. So I think there's a balance there. Well, Trish, you've proved once again you are the rock star in process safety. And obviously, it's true whether or not there is concrete evidence, regulations, improve safety. Uh, systems do need to be in place to ensure workers, the environment, and the community are out of harm's way. And as you just mentioned, um, it's good for the bottom line and it's good for productivity and, and all of the other things that go along with running an, a cost-effective and efficient business. Um, unfortunate things happen all over the world, and we will be here to discuss and learn from them. On behalf of Trish, I'm Tracy, and this is Process Safety with Trish and Tracy. Thanks again, Trish. Thanks, Tracy. Stay safe.